If you're a Basecamp Live listener, you will no doubt agree that reading is one of the most important activities to form our minds, our character, our habits, and reading books that have stood the test of time is one of the cornerstones of any classical Christian school. But the lure of screens makes picking up a book far less natural than it would have been even a few decades ago. How do we inspire our students and ourselves for that matter to read? And how do we as schools and parents choose books for our reading list, knowing there are only so many hours in a day or even a school year? Dr. David Diener is back to help guide us with a little help from C.S. Lewis. Stay tuned to this episode of Basecamp Live. Mountains, we all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it Ancient Future Education for Raising the Next Generation. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Now your host, Davies Owens. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Davies Owens here. So grateful you've taken time out of your day to listen and be a part of this podcast conversation. It's always good to hear from you. Info at Basecamp Live is an easy way to drop an email. Let me know where you're listening from, what is on your mind. So often the interviews that I do come out of suggestions from you, the listeners, and that's super appreciated. We tend to pick topics that kind of work through these kind of three areas, three buckets, if you will. One is just classical Christian 101. Why do we teach Latin? Why do we read the great books? And then kind of topic area two is around parenting. So friends like Keith McCurdy walking us through many of the challenges of, of parenting and raising the next generation. And then kind of the third area is just what's happening in the culture. What's, how do we deal with this technology issue and so on. One of the things I mentioned in the past episode with Keith McCurdy is the desire to more frequently have him on to answer your questions in the form of an FAQ. So info at Basecamp Live, you can let me know what's going on, but you can also let me know a question that you would like for us to address in a future episode with Keith McCurdy. That is um, always appreciated and love to hear what's on your mind. Today, we're talking about books. And I was reminded recently of the author, Jonathan Swift, who most of us know, having written Gulliver's Travels. He also wrote a mock heroic short satire way back in 1697 entitled The Battle of the Books. And it's very timely for today. It is a story of a struggle set in the Royal Library and the modern volumes are envying the ancient volumes that have the privileged position up on Mount Parnassus. I guess that was the top shelf there in the library. The ancients refused to come down and it provoked the moderns to attack. And it's really the reverse t today, isn't it? Where the modern voices are saying to the classics, um, you know, you guys don't have a place up here on the shelf anymore. And we're thinking, oh, but we do. And not only is there a challenge of which book to be, which books do we pick from for our classical Christian schools, because we would be decades long even trying to read half of what's out there that's in the category of great books. There's so many. And then different schools in different contexts and different places on the, in the world are choosing which book makes sense in their cultural uh, context, but you also have books that, that are universal. So how do you sort all that out? And then beyond all that, just how do you find uh, time to read. How do you encourage reading in our students and in ourselves? So that's what we're going to be jumping on today. C.S. Lewis certainly had a lot to say about that. And David Diener is back to help guide us through these many important questions. Dr. David Diener has been on base camp quite a number of times. David's a great friend. He's been in K-12 private education for 15 plus years in administration, eight years as headmaster of a classical Christian school. And he is now at Hillsdale College, where he is an assistant professor of education. 
David has a fascinating background. He's done everything from high-end carpentry for an Amish company to spending time with his wife in Bogota, Colombia as a missionary for three years. He's had a lot of time in school and has uh, been everywhere earning a master's in philosophy from the University of Indiana to an MS in history and philosophy of education. He has a dual PhD in philosophy and philosophy of education. He's also serving on quite a number of different organizations. He's a fellow in the Alcuin Fellowship. Um, he's also a board member of the uh, Society for Classical Learning. He's an academic advisor for the Classic Learning Test. And he's a member of the National Council of Classical Educators. He is a prolific writer. He's written Plato, the great philosopher educator, and he's published articles on Plato and Kierkegaard and a variety of topics in the area of philosophy of education. So he is more than equipped to help us untangle these many questions around the reading of books. So without further ado, please join me in my conversation with Dr. David Diener. Well, Dr. David Diener, welcome back to Basecamp Live. Thank you so much, Davies. Good to be with you. It's always good to have you on here, David. Every time you're on, folks send lots of wonderful complimentary uh, messages and, and gratitude for your insights and your wisdom. So wanted to bring you back on today. You know, part of Basecamp's objective is just to try to answer some of these questions that maybe should be obvious, but aren't necessarily so obvious. And I, there's not a classical Christian school in the world that doesn't somewhere in its website or at an open house talk about the importance of reading the great books of the Western tradition and, and the books that have stood the test of time. So, um, but I want to just sort of at simple, at a simple level, let's talk about why do we believe in our movement that reading old books is so important? So help us out with that. Yeah, it's a great question. I think some people uh, have the perception that classical education reads old books just because older is better, right? Mm -hmm. Or that we just like uh, really old, crusty stuff that nobody understands. Um, that's not quite right. There are actually really good reasons for reading old books. Uh, but, I, but I would say just to start, it's interesting that in our current cultural milieu, the assumption is that newer is better. So let's just recognize that, first of all, that you know, on so many planes, in so many spheres, we assume that newer is better. The newer phone is better than the old. The newer research is better than the old. The newer device is better than the old. The newer book is better than the old. And so that's a kind of common assumption of our very forward-looking kind of progressivist society. Um, but there are really good reasons for reading old books that, uh, yeah, I look forward to just unpacking. Maybe just to start with, one author who writes about this is C.S. Lewis in his in his preface to Athanasius's on the Incarnation. He writes that the preface to that to that book is sometimes called "On the Reading of Old Books," and Lewis kind of unpacks there. He says, "Look, I'm a modern writer, so I hope people read modern books. But but if you had to choose between reading old books and modern ones, you should read old ones." So he he, he builds an argument for why that's the case. Well, it's, you know, again, when Lewis wrote, people actually read books. I mean, this was this weird world where there was no, there, the only screen you might see is, you know, down at the picture show on a Friday night, maybe, but the, the world of books was all pervasive. And I have mentioned before on the show, I have a, a 19, I believe it's 1927 National Geographic magazine. And on the back cover is a full page ad. And the title of it is something along the lines of um, subscribe to our book of the month club to relive the books that charmed you in your youth. And then it's just, the photo is a, a bindings of all of these great works, you know, Shakespeare and Plato all the way down. 
And I think what a, what a moment that is so different from ours where people actually did read. And Lewis's comment is really more around, we know you're reading, but just read the really good books. And, and we're saying in our culture today, look, and we'll get to this later on, just getting people to just read at all would be amazing. I think some statistics are saying, you know, for every 100 movies people watch, they might read one book or maybe an article. So, um, so we've got to figure out just how to get people reading, which our schools do pretty well. But to the question at hand and to your comment about Lewis is, you know, why, why these old books? Um, and you commented that there's in this kind of progressive cultural uh, moment around us, anything that's old is to be thrown out. Um, how do you overcome that? How, how do you answer that question? I mean, why is it, is it like a fine wine? It only gets better with time. Why do these books endure like this? You know, it's a great question. And you're absolutely right. I mean, reading books, period, is is a good goal. And uh, and that's that's a, a different topic in a way, but incredibly important in our age. So yeah, Lewis gives a couple of reasons for this. Just unpack him for a second in his argument. He says, look, first of all, uh, this is a conversation, right? Books and authors respond to each other across the centuries. And so if you if you just read new books and you're not familiar with the old, he says, it's kind of like walking into a conversation at 11 o'clock that started three hours ago and then not realizing why your comments don't make sense. Like if you don't know what the conversation is about and you don't know what other people have said before, you, you may think you've got something great to contribute, but you really don't know how to contextualize it. And so for centuries and centuries, human beings have been exploring all different aspects of of nature and creation and the human experience and what what it means to have a, a just and good society and what it means to live well and what education is, all these kind of things. And it, it would be foolish and ignorant to think that we can just step out one day and start talking and have something to contribute to this conversation without recognizing where the conversation has come from or the directions in which it has moved or what are already dead ends that it's explored, et cetera. And then another um, kind of idea he explores is he, he talks about elsewhere about chronological snobbery and the idea that he, he says, when you go back and you read people from different area eras, what you realize is they thought they disagreed vehemently about things, but compared to our own day, they actually were very much in agreement with each other. And so there's a kind of perspective that you get from distance where you're able to actually better adjudicate ideas and understand their implications and the way that they relate to each other. And again, you can't do that if you're not engaging with things that are coming from a time other than your own. So when you read books from, from other ages, um, and, and, and not only I would say this is true, not only uh, chronologically, but in other senses as well, when you, when you read books that are foreign to your experience, right? What it does is it brings new new perspectives, new information, and helps you to maybe question some of the assumptions uh, that you hold that you could never question if you're only reading, let's say, books written, you know, from your time period or from your sort of perspective. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't in, enlarge your worldview in a way. Yeah, and to you, you know, I'm just looking up. Uh, I encourage folks to actually read that full article from Lewis on reading of old books. He has this wonderful line. He says, it's a good rule after reading a new book, never to allow yourself another new one until you've read an old one in between. If that's too much for you, you should at least read one old one to every three new ones. Sounds like a doctor's prescription for reading here and how to navigate that. So 
I guess the question, David, is kind of the obvious question is, well, what is an old book versus a new book? I mean, is there, if it's written after 1956, it's a new book. I mean, where, what is that? How do you define that? Yeah, I don't think I don't think that there's any uh, there's no year cutoff, right? <laughs> I was joking um, about it, yeah. it's a general principle, <laughs> right? So and, and and look, there's there's of course nothing wrong with with contemporary books either, and in many classical schools do read works that are that are more contemporary as well. Right? This isn't some kind of fetish with what's old and dead per se, right? Um, but the point is is that over time. Uh, over the centuries, works get uh, get a certain kind of uh, credibility, or they get a they get um, their reputation is solidified as generation after generation generation after generation after generation. Their perspectives are deemed to be helpful, valuable, insightful, useful, wisdom and virtue yielding, etc. And so, when you read something that just came out last year. It, you just don't have the ability to see that yet, right? You don't know what effects it will have. You don't know yet whether, you know, the wisdom of the ages will deem it to be worth your time. So I certainly read newer books as well as older ones. I don't think there's any hard and fast principle, but to go back to what you said, Lewis says, you know, it, if you're going to read both, I'd recommend that you um, at least, you know, read more old ones than new ones, go back and forth and read uh, what's he say? Two, two or three old books to every right. new book. Right. It's kind of his prescription. So you use the phrase, um, kind of books that should have wisdom, be wisdom and virtue yielding. I thought that was interesting. So and kind of this idea of what stands the test of time, you've got to have it kind of curate through the centuries or decades at least to see if it, if it's, you know, if it's going to endure. So can you talk a little bit, bit more about what are the, what is a, what is within the book that is enduring of it in terms of, is it because of the particular questions that it asks or the answers that it gives? Is that really what we're looking for? Um, yeah, I think in different cases, it's both of those, right? What, what questions does it, does it raise? Um, sometimes asking the right questions is even more important than giving the right answer, right? So um, there are books throughout, throughout the tradition that set uh, thinking or or societies or or uh, you know political structures or theology or, or the church on on in different directions um, by asking different questions. And again, you can't see the effects of that except historically by by looking back. And and then of course, um, many many of these great books that we read also give persuasive answers or answers at least that trenchantly incisively address key aspects of an answer we would give. So it's not, again, it's not that every old book is right about everything. Clearly not, right? Authors uh, all throughout the tradition, uh, we would say, are are wrong about a lot of things. So it's not, that the point is not to read uncritically or to simply accept as, like I said earlier, as uh, better that which is old. Um, but over the centuries, what we see is that authors are uh, the, the ones that have lasted, right? The, the ones that are, that have uh, had staying power generation after generation after generation are asking questions and giving answers that in a way are universal to the human experience. And that that's why they are relevant to us, let's say in 21st century United States of America, just like they were in 14th century Germany, you know, Europe, or in, uh, in uh, you know ancient Greece or Rome or wherever or Russia in the 19th century or whatever, 
Um, they're getting at aspects of human nature or aspects of society and reality, aspects of God that uh, th- that are that are common, universal, and uh, that can continue to bear fruit throughout the centuries. And along those lines, David, I know often those who are new to classical Christian education, parents in particular, will maybe be a, a bit concerned about the particular books that a school is selecting thinking that, well, these are all supposed to generally be wholesome Christian books. And, you know, we think about reading through the great Gatsby Fitzgerald's book in ninth grade. I know a lot of schools do, and that guy's not exactly the model you know, guy you want your daughter to be dating someday. So why, why do we read these books if they are not necessarily <laughs> wholesome and Christ-centered in every way? That's a whole nother podcast. Let's come back another time and talk about the value of pagan literature and Christian education. <laughs> I've done that. Um, podcast. Yeah, I, mean, but I know somebody's probably asking that going, well, that's great guys, but wait a minute. Just the, what's the short answer on that? Yeah, uh, a, a very simplistic short answer is that um, we can glean. Uh, uh, Basil uses the example of uh, bees gleaning um, uh, from the f- nectar from the flowers, right? You don't take everything that they offer but you you discern and weave your way between them. And then you glean from them that which is of nutritive value that you can take back and produce something of value. And 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 throughout the tradition, Christians have wrestled with this question, right? Um, there, there, because of general revelation, there is truth to be found uh, even among non-Christian authors. Uh, and, and that means that there's always a mixture of, of, of truth and falsity, of, of good and bad, and we have to be discerning uh, but there is virtue and wisdom to be found there uh, if we approach those texts wisely, obviously in an age-appropriate manner, right? I, I wouldn't introduce uh, Nietzsche to elementary students or something there, you know, in an age-appropriate manner. And, and also, it depends. The fact that there is something, let's say, unwholesome in a text does not necessarily mean that the meaning or impact or purpose of the text is not wholesome. I mean, even the Old Testament it, you know, is chock full of violence and sex and all kind of nasty, dirty stuff, you know, that that we wouldn't want our children to copy, but that's not the point of why it's there, right? right? The point of why it's there is precisely to teach us something uh, about ourselves so that we won't copy it. So, so there's value in studying heroes and there's value in studying villains, assuming again, that it's done with a wise teacher who's able to help students navigate through it well. And that's so critical, Dave. It's not just put the great book in front of the student and then let them make of it whatever they want. And we've talked before in the podcast about really what you're doing is you're inoculating. I mean, we do, and then, you know, in a, in a, you know, you, you will inject things into the arm of your child that you probably aren't really good stuff, but it's building an inoculation. So if they've read Gatsby, maybe they've come to the conclusion that these particular choices are not necessarily going to lead to an outcome that one might think that they want, um, you know, when you see it played out kind of vicariously like that. Um, one more question before we get a break, kind of again, in this idea of just trying to understand why we read these old books. One of the other distinctives of classical Christian schools is that we read old books in whole. I know when I was in uh, high school, I remember the anthology, which was just this giant chopped up segments of various books. Why do we read books typically as a whole unit as opposed to just excerpts? Yeah, as much as possible, there are works that are so long, practically, it, it makes sense to excerpt and, and give students exposure to. So I'd say there is some value in, in that as well. But insofar as it's possible within the limits of a, of a curriculum or a scope and sequence or the uh, number of hours you have in the school year, um, th- there's value in reading the whole book because it was written 
as a as a as a whole work, right? And so um, you you can listen to a piece of music and then shut it off halfway through, but you're not going to understand uh, what the composer was doing. And the same is true. The same is true of a book. Picking out a a piece uh, of some of these books uh, gives you a distorted view of the whole. Um, and so the ideal, I would say, again, not always attainable, but the ideal is to read books in their entirety as the authors intended them to be read. So that's a great setup. We're going to take a break and come back, and I want to get into this. The problem, as you're describing, is that there have been a lot of books that have stood the test of time that really are great, and there's only so many hours in the school day. So how do we choose which great books to read in whole, in part, at all? And how do we, secondly, I want to look at after the break, David, just sort of how do we deal with what I honestly, I think most of us who didn't grow up in a classical Christian world would feel pretty intimidated by these books. These are not, you know, light readings by any stretch. And so how do we kind of overcome that both as parents who are maybe deciding we're going to go back and read the books we never got a chance to read, or maybe as students who are stepping into it thinking, boy, this is, this is hard. And, uh, and how do I develop the, the mental muscles, if you will, to get through it? So we'll be right back after this break with Dr. David Diener. Teachers who love what is true, good, and beautiful are the foundation of a thriving classical school. But most schools struggle to find them. Year after year, school leaders are behind on their hiring and too often make compromises they later regret. Arcadia Connect is solving this problem. Arcadia Connect is the bridge between intellectually, aesthetically, and morally alive teaching talent and the schools that seek them. Their team is building a nationwide network of culturally aligned talent and want to help them find their way to your school. Go to arcadiaed.com forward slash connect to sign up your school today. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed in your faith. Be transformed in your relationships. At Union University, you'll find excellent Christ-centered academics and a vibrant campus community that will nurture and support you as you pursue God's calling for your life. Start your journey today. Schedule your campus visit at uu.edu slash visit. At Union University, be transformed. So Dave, as we think about this blessing of living in this moment in time that we're in, in the 21st century, and we look over our shoulder and there are so many books. Um, I was at the Library of Congress not too long ago, and it's just mind-blowing the number of books that have been written and that are continuing to be written. So the typical school has to make some really difficult decisions around which of these books that do pass the filter of have stood the test of time. Um, you know, more and more Adler folks may be aware of the situation. Adler, I guess, mid 20th century was already seeing a decline in the consumption of the great books and said, let's see if we can revive some interest. So as I understand it, went to the folks at Encyclopedia Britannica and said, what if I put, was it how many, 400 scholars? It was some huge number of scholars together. And they sorted through all of the books of the Western canon and said, let's bind these up in 60 volumes. And then we'll send the encyclopedia salesmen around door to door to sell these sets so that American uh, families will sit around and read these books. I actually, I think my mom gave into the encyclopedia salesman back in the day. We have a set of those. So the point is, yep, how, how do we choose? Right. So that's how do we, right. yeah, how do we choose the books with so many of them to select from? Well, the 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 point that you just made is a really important one. Um, that you have to uh, make choices, right? So um, that means necessarily you are going to include certain books and you are going to exclude others. So the, the question that I would be interested in 
in asking or that I think is important to ask is what are the criteria by which you do that? So, I mean, if you think, you know, tonight you go home and you, you're going to read a book to your kid before bed or something, and you pick one off the shelf, well, you're picking that one instead of the, however many others are, are there, right? You're, you're excluding those from being read. And within the, within a school, uh, you have only so much time in, in the curriculum. Uh, you have only so many, you know, hours per year, years in the student's career there, et cetera. So you have to, you have to include certain things and exclude other ones. Um, and, and I don't think that there's any, any single way to do that. Uh, but there are, there are criteria that, that across, you know, time, you mentioned Adler, right? Adler, Adler used, for example. Um, I mean, not only did, did he come up with, uh, lists of great books. He, he came up with lists of ideas, right? The great ideas in the Sin, uh, Syntopicon. Yeah. 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 Which in 1952, um, uh, listed, you know, 102 ideas. And then it was later expanded that, and then, and then referenced it to, to this, these works throughout history, right? So again, the idea here is that across history, there are these, these great texts that have stood the test of time. There are these great ideas that we see throughout these texts um, and becoming familiar with those will enable us to, uh, as we talked about earlier, become part of the conversation and contribute to it, right? So, you know, things like uh, justice or things like happiness or things like, um, you know, knowledge or things like virtue. I mean, these are universal to the human experience and, and lots of people who are uh, way smarter than you and I have been thinking and writing about this for thousands of years. So uh, becoming a part of that conversation and learning how to um, reflect on these matters well ourselves involves uh, going back and learning from their wisdom as well. So you think about the criteria that's being used, you know, often a big fan of Charlotte Mason, who has this wonderful word, uh, twaddle, which um, is her word to say, there's a lot of reading out there that's just kind of twaddle. It's just it's kind of dry. It's either sawdust dry or it's just not really um, rich and dynamic and allowing great ideas to permeate through into conversation um, as you're describing it. So it sounds like, you know, again, it's, it's, it's always going to be a tough decision, but I think a lot of times there's an attitude, especially among parents that, well, little Johnny's reading something. So that's better than nothing. So is that, a, I guess there's a place for that comment, but ultimately you don't want to build your education on that attitude. Yeah, the, so I certainly maybe we can talk about the the value of pleasure reading. I mean, I think there certainly is value in reading something that's just fun. Sometimes, I mean, I enjoy reading books that are just fun that aren't you know necessarily addressing eternal, deep, profound questions all the time, right? Um, but at the same time, the the question, I mean, the way that I have put it within school contexts is the question is not is this a good book. There are lots of good books we could read, right, from all over the place. The question is, given the, the limits of time that we have, what are the best books? So it's it's not a matter, again, balancing this with the point that I think absolutely there, there's a time and a place for just pleasure reading. Um, the, the question is, you know, with the limited amount of number of books that we can get through with students, what are the ones that are going to be most impactful? What are the ones that are going to most open their eyes and their hearts and their souls um, to, to the things that we want them to be thinking about and the things we want them to love. And, and, then, and then choosing books based on that, um, I think is, is the way to start. 
So if, if you were to, I think sometimes, I think there's confusion even among the educator, us educators and those running the schools in terms of, is there really a canon of great books? In other words, if you started Diener Academy tomorrow and you're going to start it you know, from scratch, build the curriculum in, I'm sure there's certain books that you would be remiss not to put in there if they've never read Shakespeare or Plato and you're calling yourself a classical school, that's probably a miss. Um, but after some base level number of books that you probably would want to have in there, there seems to be a great deal of flexibility and maybe even sort of cultural um, connection. In fact, I was just earlier today on a fantastic um, coaching call with the SEL and we had, um, you know, Russ Gregg, who's running an urban school. We had um, Karen Elliott, who's live from Africa and the work that she's doing there. And, you know, just this, it's a, it's so exciting to see all the different settings. With in Rafiki. Which, Rafiki yeah. Right. We're, we're, we're with Rafiki. So other than, we know there's some maybe base of books that we probably would need to have if we're going to call ourselves classical Christian. Talk a little bit about kind of when you start making those choices and you move into books that maybe make more sense in your particular context. How do we make those decisions wisely? Yeah, and this is a great set of questions, Davies. And I think as in with so many things, uh, having a balanced perspective here is the key. So, so you said, is there a canon? Right? I would say, well, yes and no. And by in the way, I should, words, I should answer even, you know, remind myself, some people are hearing that. I went to seminary, so we say words like that. People are thinking like guns and cannons and weaponry. Yeah. And so, <laughs> no, it's basically, it means like a reed or measuring stick. Like these are, this is a set of standards that we're going to adhere to. Every classical Christian school should have these 10 books. So, But the answer is no, there's nothing that rigid. Well, I mean, look, this is a conversation, right? So, so, so let me give the yes and no sides, right? The, the yes side is, Look, over the centuries, you know, we, we this is not something we make up. Chesterton calls it the democracy of the dead, right? In other words, over the centuries, um, there are certain books that um, across time, across cultures, across, um, you know, um, different places in the world and different kinds of people have been recognized widely as key texts that human beings should be exposed to and should think about, okay? And there are some, right? At the same time, this is a this is a fluid conversation. There there are there are authors or or groups of authors, sometimes types of authors who are who are not included in the conversation or even excluded from the conversation, and then and then hopefully at some point come into the conversation. Um, you know, Adler. You, you mentioned Adler, mentioned Adler again um, at the end of his How to Read a Book. Uh, he he lists in the appendix this whole list of books that he says you should read, right? This is a kind of canon. But but even, even that, when he's sort of saying, here's the list, he says before he gives the list, he says, look, like everybody's gonna come up with their own list. You should go off and make your own list, right? This is a good place to start. So um, I think no matter how small or large of a list you make, uh, there's always there will always be other works that could be or should be included in that list, right? right? So- right. Um, so I think that's just a helpful way again to think about this. We don't we don't have to um, uh, we sh- we shouldn't fall off the extreme either way. There's not a nobody has the fixed list of books that every educated person should read, you know, and nothing else matters. I mean that's silly, you know. But at the same time, it's not just kind of a whatever goes. There there are some um, some standard texts that a- a- across time have been widely recognized as. Uh, key and very valuable. Well, and that's where there should be. It's not, it's not legalistic. I remember years ago, and I've been doing this, I've been in the classical Christian space for about 20 years, but I can remember a story of a 
startup school. I think they're probably in California, but they traveled like many did in the early days up to Northern Idaho and got Logos's curriculum and went back to California. And, and then somebody realized a few years into it that they were, they were still faithfully teaching Idaho history there in California because that's what the curriculum said they were supposed to do. So you kind of have to realize <laughs> you might want to set it in its context of where you are. And, and I know recently talking to my friend, David Goodwin, head of the ACCS, who was talking about the differentiation between kind of, if you will, the proper list of great books and then the fables and stories. They're another way of getting it a list of literature that would make sense in a particular context. He said, I was talking to a school in Germany and of course Grimm's fairy tales are of kind of German descent. So you'd be remiss if you're running a German classical Christian school, not to have students probably read Grimm's fairy tales. So some of it really is contextually uh, decided and, and uh, that's not a bad thing. Yeah. And, and that's a great point. And if I may, again, uh, um, just kind of give a, an either or, or a, or a kind of uh, a golden mean maybe between two extremes. On, on the one hand, you, you were talking about, um, you know, like say, uh, an urban school in, in Minneapolis, Hope Academy, or the the Rafiki schools in Africa, or or you know the school in California who's reading, studying Idaho history, and and there certainly is value in um, in having students learn about things that are particular to their their time, their place, right? So I mean, think about the way that we study state history. Your your example is so funny, precisely because um, typically students in Ohio. St- at some point, study Ohio history, and students in California study California history, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Um, and, and and there's something very valuable about learning um, uh, where you have come from and your tradition, and uh, from 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 the events that have taken place that within your context that gave rise to you, or the ideas, right? All this stuff. Um, so so that's absolutely true. Um, or Grimm's fairy tales in Germany, et cetera. Um, at the same time, the both and would be precisely the reasons that Lewis gives for why we should re- read old books that I mentioned earlier. Um, one of the key ideas is there are things you can learn from people who are different than you are that you cannot learn if you only listen to people who are like you, right? And so there is value in me reading. Uh, you know, I grew up in Michigan, so I did take Michigan history as an elementary student. That's great for me to know something about Michigan history, but it's also great for me to read things from times and places that are completely unfamiliar to me, right? Right. So when I read, I don't know, about, uh, you know, um, Russian peasants in a Tolstoy novel, right? I have very few points of reference, you know, for what it means to be, uh, you know, a peasant in 19th century Russia. I mean, that's not the place I'm coming from. But precisely by reading about that from another time, another place, an, another culture, another tradition, I can learn things and get insights into myself and into human nature and into the world that I couldn't have if I only read, you know, I don't know, books written by Michiganders about Michigan or something like that. Which is, which is really the state of the world today. We live in, I mean, we as, as humans and certainly in America, the, the echo chamber problem of everyone listens to on their social media because it's so highly curated and narrow, you can live on, a, on a, an island of ideas. And I think, again, the great books would have never allowed that to happen. You had to get outside of yourself and to your point, even experience vicariously life in a Russian village or wherever it may be. Well, or ancient Greece. I mean, yeah, that's exactly right. The diversity of 
cultures and perspectives and worldviews and ideas and um you know philosophical assumptions and theological assumptions and and cultural assumptions on and on and on i mean the incredible diversity of ideas and experiences that you get um by reading across the centuries through this tradition is enormous and and um and in a sense universally applicable right Maybe we need to start a campaign that, you know, come celebrate diversity at a classical Christian school near you. And it's because we probably have the most diverse, open environment for true thought and engagement across the centuries, across different cultures. And again, and yet we're often accused of not having a whole lot of, um, of range of ideas. And yet that's at the very heart of what we're all about. Of course, all of it anchored back to truth. Well, before we get a break, I want to come back after the break, David, and, and kind of go back to, again, Got to, you got to always quote Lewis a lot because he's always so good at everything. But he talks about in, in his, um, in his uh, on the reading of old books, he says that students, uh, the student is half afraid to meet one of his great philosophers face to face. He feels himself inadequate and thinks he will not understand him. And I think that's, I want to just get your, your ideas on this because the intimidation factor, and I think sometimes parents, those of us who didn't have this education, look at our own students and we think this is just going to be too hard. I don't want to, I, w- I want them to have fun. I don't want this to be a struggle for them. And so both from the initial, maybe you're transitioning, your child's transitioning to a classical Christian school and they're not going to be able to handle this. Maybe that's a concern. Or as an adult, again, maybe we think I didn't get this and I could never go back and learn these books. They're just too hard and too intimidating. So help us understand that. And I'd love to hear some stories of folks that sort of had a breakthrough experience reading these wonderful old and great books. We'll be right back with Dr. David Diener. He's worked with families for more than 30 years as a licensed professional counselor and marriage family therapist. It's time for a quick encouragement on the best practices of raising the next generation. We call it a McCurdy moment. Keith, as we're coming out of COVID, the world is opening up. Are, are parents maybe changing in the way that they perceive their children? Do they frame up their actions in a different way? What are you seeing? You know, I have this conversation all the time with parents, and I will tell you, I don't think it has anything to do with COVID. It's a trend that's been changing for generations. We view our children as fragile, as opposed to viewing them as built well to exist and function in this world. And when you view a child as fragile, whether you know it or not subconsciously, we bubble wrap them. We start clearing obstacles out of the way. We, we pitch a narrative to them that if they are ever uncomfortable or, or not happy with something, that they're a victim. The opposite, though, is if we view them as built well as God has made them, built well to function in this world, then we onboard them to life with vigor. I mean, we drag them right into life. We start teaching them things and equipping them. And, you know, I remember growing up and and one of the things that was very commonplace when I was a kid was you'd fall down and somebody would say, ah, rub it off, rub some dirt on it, walk it off. That is not the mentality we have today. And and so we've really got to decide, how am I going to view my child? Am I going to view them as culture says, which is they're fragile, Or am I going to view them as God says, because he built them capable to function in this world? It will change how we deal with our children. I think probably just being self-aware of the questions we asked to your point about the falling down. I mean, it seems like the the premier question of all right now is, are you okay? Which just lends itself to probably, I'm not okay. And here's my challenge of the moment I'm having. Oh, parent, help me. 
Well, there's an interesting thing. If you, if you go to a playground and, and if you reflect on this and you, you pay much attention to young kids, you will see this. A kid falls down and the parent that says, are you okay? The child will think and, and, and <laughs> then get okay. upset. And that, right. <laughs> if, however, you will see another parent often who has like six children there and the child falls down and the parent says, oh, get up, you're fine. The child gets up and takes off and goes to place. The parent is giving that child an identity that you're okay. Versus setting a child up to evaluate what does okay mean? Well, and you see that everywhere. There was a little Instagram meme reel I saw recently, and the gist of it was kind of four decades of sort of, uh, you know, adolescent life. And the first decade in the 80s or whenever it was, you know, the kid's walking through a crowd and somebody bumps into his shoulder and he just kind of pulls himself, straightens up, keeps going. And then the next is, you know, the 90s and the 2000s. And by the time you get to present day, he gets bumped in the crowd. He immediately falls on the ground, balls up, and then he starts, gets his phone out and hashtags hurt, victim, can't make it. Like, yeah, that's about where it's that's at. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That's where about. it's at. Yeah. And we got to avoid yeah. that I, at all costs. <laughs> well, our, think of it this way. Our job as parents is to inform our children about who they really are. Right. And, and, it, and it goes even to this basic thing. You are sturdy. You are capable. You will be fine. And speak words of affirmation and, and blessing, not cursing over your children. So that's exactly. a great, awesome. Great. Thanks so much, Keith. Got a question for Keith to answer on a future McCurdy moment? Well, send it to us at info at basecamplive.com and learn more about Keith McCurdy on the speaking page on the Basecamp Live website. David, I think the majority of us who are listening to this podcast did not grow up in classical Christian schools and the idea of picking up a great book, an old book, one of these that have stood the test of time, it's just hard. First of all, they don't have pictures, which I would joke a bit, but we live in a <laughs> highly visual world and we think, look at the size of that font. And oh my goodness, those are some hard words and big ideas. And what what encouragement do you have to folks? Again, maybe the it's a student coming in that's not been in this context or it's a parent wondering if it's too late for them or for us to, to pick up a book that is great and overcome some of these initial uh, perceived barriers. What are your thoughts? It's never too late. Jump in and join the fun, join the conversation. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, obviously there are, there are works that are hard. Um, there are works that I would say, you know, don't start there. Uh, start with something easier um, and uh, to, to get yourself incrementally into it. Um, it reading is like uh, any other skill. Um well, not any other skill. Neil, it, it, well, in that it's difficult. Neil Postman quips one time. He says he, he says about watching television. He says watching television is such a low-level cognitive skill. There's yet to be recorded a single case of a television viewing disability. Right. <laughs> whereas, whereas reading is hard. It takes time. You know, you, I mean, the point he's making is you can watch TV and turn keep watching TV twenty years later. And you're really not better at doing doing it cognitively, right? You haven't developed your TV watching skills. Reading's not like that. Reading is like many other skills. Um, it grows. Uh, it it takes time, um, and it takes work. And so, uh, yeah, don't if, if you've never uh, read very much uh, great literature, you know, don't start by reading War and Peace or you know the Divine Comedy or something. You you wouldn't know what was going on. But there are entry points to come into the conversation and to build those skills and to grow. I mean, it's like anything else. You know, think about athletics, for example. I sometimes use the metaphor of athletics with students with regard to school. Like students voluntarily play athletics, right? 
And how many people really enjoy running sprints at the end of practice? Very few students will say, I love running sprints at the end of practice, but they do it because they recognize that there's value in it. And they don't feel like they're beaten down or, or hate life because their coach is making them run sprints. And I think the same way about um, learning as teachers, as educators, we should push students um, in ways that are hard and, and that are uncomfortable because it's by doing that that they grow. Um, but also we should do it in a way uh, that, that gives them joy and, and a sense of purpose and is not just sort of drudgery. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was booked that I think many throughout the 20th century referred to Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind. It gained, you know, quite a a readership. And part of his bloom is just talking about the the loss of uh, the ability to think at any level of substance. He calls it, you know, the educational shallowness of our world. And the antidote or the of the cure he talks about is the diligent, he, one of his points he says is a diligent study of Plato and the great book. So to your point, that is uh, the word diligent suggests what you're saying, that this isn't necessarily going to just be a walk in the park. Uh, it may t- require a little flexing of the, of the mental mind, but it's not just let's do mental pushups and eat gravel because it's good for our brain. It's uh, there is a joy in it. Absolutely. So can, can you think of, you know, when you think about your years teaching and leading and can you think of some of those moments where there was sort of an awakening in the classroom or these books that maybe at face value seemed rather difficult, but you, the, the, the the stories that began to unfold and the application into the life of the student were transformative. What, what did that look like for you? Think of some moments. Yeah, I can give you a couple, a, a couple examples. You know, when students um, uh, are, are studying, uh, I'm thinking at the upper levels more here that they're studying theology or apologetics and engaging with ideas um, in, in contemporary discourse, right. Or, or they're, they're talking about, you know, sort of contemporary heresies or or debates, and and then because of what they've read previously or are familiar with, they're able to draw connections and realize, oh, actually, uh, this this already ha- this debate already happened, you know, fifteen hundred years ago or something, and, and we've read Augustine and he was talking about this or something. It helps them to draw connections between um, these books that they've read. And then w- what's happening around them. And it enables them to, again, discern what's happening uh, in their current context um, and understand it and interpret it, right? Um, uh, uh, a thorough study of Roman history, say, um, helps us to understand some of what we see happening in our society today, right? So, for, for example, so when you when you can start to see these connections between uh, the conversations that are happening around you or the you know the the socio political events or the or the, the the debates that are happening, and then you can tie it back. It helps you to realize that um, you know uh, maybe history repeats itself often, and you have something to say to what to what you're seeing. An- another just delight that I've seen students is we we've talked about how this is a conversation, right? Um, and when you become part of the conversation and as you get reference points, you start to see more. You So, for example, authors regularly, uh, well-read authors, refer to other works or borrow metaphors or make oblique references to the ideas of other people, right? Or quote other people in their works. And so, I mean, I've seen, you know, even my own children at the at the middle school level 
or even at the elementary level, they start to say like, oh yeah, that came from so-and-so or like that person's referring to something in this book or, oh yeah, I know what that means because I read this other thing. And so they start to see these connections and it, it's like they become a part of a community, right? It's like, these are my friends. Like they know each other. You, you're quoting that person. I've read that person. And, and they get excited because they realize I'm becoming a part of this conversation. Um, and, and that gives me reference points, not only with my friends, you know, we can make, we can make corny jokes about, you know, in Latin or something, right? I, I mean, not only with my friends, but also, uh, again, across the ages with each, with these other authors. And I think that's a very fulfilling thing to realize, like, I, as a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old, am, am, am becoming part of this conversation that's way older than I am, and, and of which I, in certain ways, uh, have so much to learn from. And that has so much to do with the contemporary world, because again, I think sometimes we only see it at a cursory level. Well, I mean, I remember years ago, a parents, a dad in particular was very vocal. They ended up pulling their school, their child out, unfortunately from our school, which is very rare, but his comment was, I, I, you guys are so fixated on these Romans and these Greeks and I just don't get it. And I don't understand it. And I thought, well, we've not done a very good job of explaining this to you because it sounds like we're just talking about let's teleport back to the Romans, and the Greeks, and just hang out there and wear sandals and robes and and uh, whatever you do, scratch your beard back in the day, as opposed to, well, those ideas are absolutely the same ideas today. And those challenges are the same challenges today. And now let's, to your point, we have this ability to reach back and pull that conversation forward into the moment that we're in, which is very, I think, powerful and convincing. Well, and, and I think that the point... Um, is very well taken. It, it does seem to me that many uh, classical schools, this is an area where we can grow, is in helping students to draw those connections. I think some 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 schools do it better than others, uh, or some homeschoolers do it better than others. But uh, I, I I do think that there are students, uh, unfortunately, who sometimes do get the sense that I'm just reading all this you know old material that doesn't really have relevance uh, to to me today. And hopefully, as as we've talked, you know, over the, the last number of minutes, what what we've been able to explain, you and I, is that no, those old books are valuable precisely because they have something relevant to you today, because they're speaking from another time and place. And so, yeah, I think helping students to see those connections is really important. And so, in the, in that vein, David, I th we talked earlier about the importance of of just reading for pleasure, reading for joy. I again to be. I think to be honest with what I've seen, and I think to your comment about just the dangers, if we're too fixed on let's just study these great, uh, you know, more philosophical principles and we can leave students without maybe closing the gap to help them really see what does this have to do with me today? And I think just, so again, another podcast topic, the whole idea of kind of this maybe more knee jerk reaction, anything that looks utilitarian and practical, it's sort of modern education. We don't have anything to do with that. So we need to make sure that what we do stays sort of in this more heady philosophical. And I think that's a risk that maybe we should think about, but to a specific question, when we back to kind of our, the book list as schools are assembling them and as parents think about reading, um, we've talked a lot in here already about just choosing wisely a good book, but it, is there room within a school curriculum or if, again, if you're running Dean or Academy, you'd say, you know, I'm going to build a, enough margin in here where students can actually go pick a book of some topic that they're really interested in. And maybe that becomes a paper they write, or is there room in our curriculum to give that kind of freedom so they can really find something they truly have a heart for? 
Yes. And I would say it doesn't have to be an either or, like either beat them down by prescribing everything or just lead, let them read whatever garbage they want. Right. Um, so obviously within a homeschooling context, this is easy to do, right? To give students freedom. Um, even within a school context, the schools where I've been a headmaster and have worked, uh, you know, we, one way to do it is through, say, like a summer reading program where students are required after between every grade level, K-12, they're required to read multiple books during the summer. Um, and, and sometimes uh, those are prescribed, you know, like everybody entering fourth grade has to read this book. Everyone entering 11th grade has to read this. Uh, but, but what the schools where I, that I've led, what we've done is, uh, is also give options. And so you can, you can give a set of options that's really big, such that students have a lot of freedom, but also that's a curated set. So, so you're giving students enormous freedom to read um, things that they will find of interest, but within, you know, some parameters of books that are, that are high quality pieces of work. It seems like one of the, the cautions as, as, I mean, again, this is perhaps more directed at, at, at educators is just the, um, you know, breadth over depth or volume. And I, I can remember I've, Back in the late '90s, I think I still have on a file somewhere a screenshot of a classical Christian school. I don't remember exactly where it was, but their 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 homepage image was of a probably a grammar school student, you know, four feet tall, with a stack of bindings of the great books next to them. And I I couldn't help if I looked close enough, remember a little bit of a bloodshot eye and 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 on the kid thinking you know, c- come to our school and you're going to read all these books and it's going to be amazing. And I think again, by the time you're 10, by the time you're 10 and then you'll collapse. But I do think there's a little bit of a, especially because we, we, the educators can tend to be folks who actually maybe somebody majored in philosophy and they really think reading all those books would be the most amazing thing in their life. And again, my point is how do we balance that uh, kind of American tendency to go for speed and volume? And I, I know of schools, again, I won't, site names to protect the innocent, I guess. But, you know, I had a school that went in and just said, Hey, we're going to, we're going to rethink this entire curriculum set because we don't need to read 50 of the great books. We could read 35 and go deep and have meaningful conversations and not have kids with bloodshot eyes. So isn't there, how do you find that balance? Because you don't want to go light and under undersell the opportunity, but you also need to cook the kids in these great books. No, this is a fantastic set of issues that schools all the time struggle with. And the the key question is, what's our goal? What's the purpose of why we're doing this? And there is no way. uh, So, so, so I I know of a school also, I'm sure, you know, many listeners have examples, but I I know of one where uh, over the years, the, the, the upper school literature lists had just grown and grown and grown as teachers added a book and this book and this book and this book. And it, and, and at one point um, it needed to be almost cut in half. Right. Uh, because there was so much, it, it, there were so many books. The students hated it. The teachers hated it. Right. You had these well intentioned teachers who were being, being handed this set of books by the administration and said, here's the, you know, 276 books you're supposed to read this year. I'm exaggerating. And he said, like, I can't do this. Right. And, and do you know how many pages of reading this is a night? And you're going book after book after book after book after book. And it's not fun for anyone. And, and the point would be, uh, which, which is what you're pointing toward is, um, we want this to be a, a joyful experience. We, not that it's easy, right? Like running sprints, but we want it to cultivate a love of learning. So the way that I've said it before is, look, there is no way, let's say in a 
school context. There is no way in 12 or 13 years, you as a school are going to be able to have your students read every book they should read. You can't do it. And by the way, the same is true of any other subject as well, right? Math, science, anything. You can't teach them everything that you want them to know. So if your goal is jam as much as many books down their throats as you possibly can, you're actually in the longer term going to undermine the broader purpose, yep. right? Yep. If you can uh, regulate your 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 curriculum and your list such that you are giving them, you know, content rich material and and obviously, you know, exposing them to a lot of wonderful things, but also in a way that they love it, they will go on and continue to read, right? Yep. yep. Um, it, it, so if you play the long game, you're actually doing them a, a greater service by giving them less right now. Because if you can if you can teach them how to read well, that's the other thing. When you're going through book after book after book after book at lightning speed, you're not actually teaching them to read well. So if you can back down, teach them how to read well, instill in them a love for reading, even once they leave the doors of your school, they will go off and continue reading, right? And so you're really setting them up for a lifetime of learning, which a lot of schools say that that's what they care about, or that's one of the things yeah. they care about is lifelong learning or cultivating lifelong learners or something like that. And to your to the point you made earlier, statistically, Americans today read an abysmally no, low number of books once they leave formal education. Yeah. So um, it's it's incredibly important to keep that balance. Uh, but again, the question is, what's the goal? What, what are we trying to achieve here? And if you think about it that way, it helps frame the conversation. Yeah, that's. I'm so glad we included that piece, David, because I think, again, it's, a, it's always going to be imperfect and schools are always going to try to, you know, balance, uh, you know, volume because we want the best. But um, I, yeah, I think, and I think the reality is, if, and we often have students on this podcast, but I think some, some of the things that they would say might disturb us in terms of, you know, I was, I was excited about the eight books, but the 12, I really got, you just kind of burned me out on this thing. And I haven't picked a book up five years now since I've graduated college. I mean, you know, because I'm just not, you kind of, you kind of knocked it out of me. And that would, that would be, somebody said to me years ago when I used to do youth ministry, you know, the greatest sin is actually boring people with God. I thought, you know, that's really interesting. It's probably the greatest sin of our classical schools is boiling them in the great books. <laughs> so mm. So it's interesting. Could we, uh, could uh, the flip side of that is if we awaken them to it, you're talking about a, a wonderful life of joyful learning and discovery, which is what we're after. So well, no, they, that's right. And, yeah. and so, so more is not always better. Right. But the flip side is by exposing them to these, these great ideas and these great works and this great conversation, uh, you are setting them up. And I think there also are a lot of students who leave from classical Christian education and go off to college. And realize, you know, maybe maybe I didn't see what a blessing that was at the time, but holy cow, I am really well equipped, right? I, I mean, I can give examples of, you know, students who say, I'm in this honors program and I've already been exposed to this huge number percentage of the books that the people around me who are the best and the brightest, many of them haven't read many of these. And the professor notices this and gives me extra, you know, some, some extra opportunities to do research. I mean, so, so there are benefits and, and I think our students realize that a lot of times uh, later down the road. So finding that balance of, of preparing them really well, but also doing it in a way that's full of joy and, and cultivating their loves uh, is, is the key. That's really well said. That's absolutely right. And it's, it's creating a lifelong habit. And, and I believe that that is where the vast majority of our students come out uh, hungry for more. And to your point, if anything, they leave and, and are, dissatisfied by the 
the thinness of the the offerings of the world, and they you know dust back off some of those books that uh, that were critical to their learning. So, well, David, thanks as always for your insights and your encouragement. This has been a great discussion, and hopefully, folks are uh, more aware of this gift we have of having inherited this collection of amazing resources and books. And it's not too late. I guess that's the big word for if you're if you're a parent and you think uh, so. Final question is we, if you had to just pick one book off that giant bookshelf I'm looking at behind you to a, for a parent that's just kind of dipping their toe in all of this, what would you hand them? <laughs> oh, it totally depends. I can't answer that universally. I, the, the, the first question I would ask, okay. the first question I would ask is, uh, what's your background? What have you read? Yeah. And what are you interested in? Right. Because there are different uh, like I think of the great conversation, like a, like a, a big hallway or a flowing river. Right. And there are lots of entry points. And so, um, if, if you love, uh, you know, romance stories, there are great novels. If you love theology, there are great, you know, entry points there. If you took some philosophy classes years ago and are interested in exploring some of those themes, there are entry. So I think, I think, you know, uh, assess where you're at and, um, uh, and then think about what you love and, and start, start with the entry point there, which will then expose you to other things. And, and if needed, uh, find someone around you who can help, right? Um, instead of reading a book by yourself, uh, get a couple of people into a book club and just read it together, right? That can be a very, very fruitful, uh, way to do it. Or, or many schools do, do parent education things where, you know, teachers teach in different kind of contexts for parents, uh, a text that the students are reading. I think that's a wonderful thing. And that, that has so many benefits culturally, et cetera, for the students to see their mom and dad going off to learn about the stuff they're learning about. I mean, that's great, but there are people around uh, who can help. So I uh, don't feel alone and, uh, and baby steps, one step at a time, further up, further in. Great advice, David. Thanks so much for, for all of your wisdom and encouragement. And uh, we look forward to having you back on at a future date for another conversation. Thanks again. Thanks so much, David. Appreciate it. Hey there, Basecamp Live listeners. This is Davy's daughter, Hannah here. And I want to congratulate this amazing podcast on almost five years of incredible content, enriching interviews, and over 200 episodes. So that has brought so much encouragement to people. And thank you for being a part of that. Thank you for supporting this message, this mission. And there are a couple ways that you can help in sharing that message. First of all, please leave a five-star review on whatever app you are using to listen to this podcast. You can also share it with a friend. That's a great way to get the message out about Basecamp Live. And of course, share your story with us at info at basecamplive.com. There we'll also answer all your questions and more. And any topics that you'd like to hear too, please send them there to info at basecamplive.com. We'll see you next week, everybody. Thanks.